Hello everyone. In this week's discussion, we are going to look at depopulation in the Pacific and subsistence economy, or the traditional economy in Melanesia, with a focus on Vanuatu, along with the impact of COVID-19 in relation to the traditional economy as a source of resilience. The impacts of the current economic crisis and the roles of subsistence economy, or as it is known as the traditional economy in most Melanesian countries, in Vanuatu, for instance, it is often referred to as custom economy and is seen as a source of resilience where it still outweighs the cash economy in terms of providing livelihoods for the population. But first, we are going to start with a brief context to our discussion by taking a step back into history to try to make sense of the introduction to pandemics in the Pacific and the resulting depopulation. There have been lengthy discussions about the depopulation of indigenous people of the Pacific, both as to numbers and causes. Early scholars have agreed that there are no reliable population estimates, and the estimates that may have been made by early explorers and missionaries without the use of sufficient measurements are sus a suspect. Some modern scholars have argued that the Pacific Islands were not densely populated at the time of the first contact with foreigners, and at the same time, opposing few noted otherwise that they were in fact an upward number of population prior to contact to, with Europeans, resulting in more precipitous gradient of decline, particularly in the islands visited by the early explorers and Europeans. Guam by the Spanish from 1521, Tahiti by the French and followed by the British in 1767, and then later Hawaii by the British in 1778. Early scholars like David Stannon in his 1989 publication suggested that prior to foreign contact, Hawaiians, for example, have numbered at least 800,000. That is about three times greater than previous estimates. He also noted that according to archaeological evidence, along with the count of extremely Huge taro crops led to the belief of very high population densities, concluding that the number of indigenous Hawaiians probably reduced drastically to a low of 40,000 in the 1890s. In Fiji, estimate of pre-contact populations were radically unstable, which was the claim made by another scholar, Lugera, in his 1997 publication, also acknowledging that the documented decline was shown as the population of 200,000 to 300,000 from the 1840s, and in 1847, a population of 150,000, and the colonial census of 1881 was 114,478, and in 1921 showing a population decline in 284,470. In Vanuatu, on the island of Anijum, a detailed study by Norman MacArthur presented a smaller example of a precipitous decline in 1958. For instance, there were 3,513 people, and by the end of 1941, there were only 186 people remaining. Hello, this is Coming to the Mad podcast from the Melanesian Women Today Impact Service Series. Told through the lens of everyday Pacific Island women, the Mad series seeks to break cultural barriers and invite listeners to hear of real human stories of making a difference. The stories you will hear from this series balance diverse interests and weave together the stories of courageous women 
who dedicate their lives to making a difference in their communities and country. Coming to the Mad series is a safe space for women in the Pacific to use their voices. It also explores the integral aspects of women's lives all across the South Pacific and gives the listeners a window into the many different issues women face through storytelling. Welcome to The Mat. I am your host for today, Dr. Mary Tarisovic, and I'm glad to have with me today on The Mat to discuss and answer some of the questions around depopulation in the Pacific, as well as the impact of COVID-19 in relation to traditional economies as a source of resilience, is Mr. Kirk Huffman. He is an anthropologist. He is also known to speak many different languages. Can you hear me okay? I, I can hear it absolutely fine. Can you hear me? Okay, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Easy. Good number. Yeah. Yes, I, I'm used to this. I've done, I've, I've done over four or five hundred radio programs since <laughs> the 70s, so it's okay. I'm used, I'm used, I'm used to the situation. Okay. <laughs> okay. You just tell me what topic you want me to talk on and tell me what language you want me to speak and I'm on automatic pilot. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess we're going we're gonna to do it in English because we have quite a, a fast audience, a range of audience, so, so it's obvious that yeah, people are yeah, interested. I think it's a, I think it's a I think it's a yeah, it's a really good, a really good initiative, Mary. Congratulations. Kirk is well known for his contribution to the history writing of customs and cultures of Vanuatu, where he has spent 18 years working prior as a field work, cultural field work worker, mostly on the island of Malakula in the 19 in, in the 70s and later became the first-time curator of the National Museum of Vanuatu, also known as VKS, from 1977 till the end of 1989. He studied prehistorical archaeology and ethnology at the Universities of Newcastle, Oxford and Cambridge in the UK before carrying out his cultural fieldwork in Vanuatu. As an anthropologist and ethnologist, Kirk's long list of accolades is endless, including being an honorary curator of the National Museum section of Vanuatu Cultural Center since 1991. He is also apparently a research associate with the Australian Museum in Sydney, Australia, an honorary associate in the Division of Museums and Cultural Engagement with the University of Sydney, Australia, member of the scientific committee with the Museum of Tahiti and the island of Puano Aiwa in Tahiti, French Polynesia, and also corresponding member of the Institute of Advanced Studies with the University of Nantes in France. He has had the privilege of learning through quality time spent with the wise traditional cultures from Vanuatu, North Africa, and parts of Sahara, Northern Colombia in South America, and learned from the traditional peasants in the interior of the island of Efisier in Spain. In the wake of the global pandemic of COVID-19, there has been an evolving narrative of what to expect and how to respond. Mm-hmm. 
The novel coronavirus has kept us constrained in our homes maybe for months and is already in reorientating how we see our relationship with each other, to the government and to the outside world. Experts expect to see some changes in the coming months or years which may feel unfamiliar or unsettling. Will nations stay closed? Will touch become taboo? What will become of our economies? What can we learn from the past pandemic and how can we move forward? What role does traditional economies such as that of Vanuatu or the custom economy have to help decide, help us decide on what is best for us moving forward? We can all agree that a rearticulation of human development for the 21st century is much needed globally. As the socioeconomic effects of coronavirus worsen, the deep failures of our global economic order are being revealed and questioned. Is this the end of the neoliberal era that we know? What will the economy look like after COVID-19? What kind of economy do we want to restore our current situation to? What is the current global economy system revealing? It is showing how precarious the current situation or the current economic system is. Unsustainable, how precarious so many livelihoods have been affected on, globe, on a global scale. Not just the developed in the developed world, but also the developing world. So many people in the informing, informal working system are not secure. It is revealing that after all, we are a part of nature and biodiversity, and our current economic system is not what it's cracked up to be. Well, thank you for asking me to speak with you all uh, this morning. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a very good initiative here. Uh, 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 yeah, coming to the mat. It's a very nice mat. I assume your mother made it well, but she did a very good read. So we can sit down and talk on that. And so you're asking about uh, early populations in Vanuatu in the Pacific and depopulation. Mm-hmm. Look, the Pacific, uh, since the 16th century, Okay. So over the last 500 years has been subjected to uh, regular waves of uh, illnesses and diseases introduced into the area from the outside world, mm. uh, from the time of the first uh, white people into the Pacific, about 500 years, were the first were the Portuguese okay. yeah, coming in, and then the Spaniards. Mm. And then the Dutch, and then the French and the English at the same time, sort of competing with themselves, and they're still competing even today. Mm. Uh, each of those intrusions into the Pacific over the last 500 years has brought illness and disease with them. Uh, some of the earliest uh, diseases were basically uh, what we call in Bishlamar, water, dysentery. Mm. Dysentery, some very severe forms. Yeah? Mm. And that was the first wave of illnesses that came in. Anytime a, uh, an early Portuguese exploring ship or Spanish ship came in, mm. populations where they landed would come down very shortly afterwards with massive, severe doses of dysentery. 
which very often killed a lot of people in those days. Mm. People get used to it now. Shit, shit, water is what you get if you drink bad quality kava now. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and you're still drinking kava the next day, yeah. sort of thing. But in the early days, before people had developed a certain form of resistance to it, mm. it was really serious stuff. And then came all the other diseases. But the, you asked about uh, early population of Vanuatu. Right. It's very difficult to estimate what the population of Vanuatu was hundreds of years ago. Mm. A sort of a rough guesstimate, mm. as somewhere between an estimate and a guess, mm. would be about six to 800,000. Mm. You know, but... Some estimates have even said there might have been a million and a half people in mm. Vanuatu before there was contact uh, uh, with early uh, uh, white explorers. Mm. So that's a big population. And even yes. the early, early explore, earliest explorers, they all note that the islands were really, really densely inhabited. Eh? Mm. Almost, uh, I mean, like a, a French explorer passing by, when he passed by uh, uh, Ambar, in 1768, this was before Captain Cook. Right. I mean, when he passed by Ambai, uh, uh, it was there's so many people on the island. It was almost they were almost tipping off the coast into the sea. You know, mm. and that's what it looked like. Um, he's the one who called. He gave a, a name to Ambai as Ile de Lepreux, mm. Lepreux Island. And okay. what it was was he only saw it from a distance. He couldn't land, uh, but he saw all these people, and they had all these. Uh, to him, it looked like leprosy, right. uh, but it wasn't leprosy. It was uh, yours, yours, yours. Uh, I don't know what the Bishma term for it. Sofut. So- I think sofut in Bishma in some Bishma. Hmm. But it, it's it's a type of infectious thing that uh, uh, is a type of scratch. Oh, okay. So uh, like scabies. your skin. Yeah, sort of like scabies, mm. and that was very widespread in Melanesia right. uh, up until uh, relatively recently. Yeah? Mm. Uh, and there was a lot of that on Ambai at, the, at, at that time, but he, Bougainville didn't realize it was uh, yours. Uh, it was uh, it was actually he thought it was uh, leprosy. Mm. But anyway, um, uh, then the first person, the first part person that we know of that landed. Uh, in what's now Vanuatu was the Portuguese explorer mm-hmm. Ferdinand de Quiroz who was actually working for the King of Spain right. and he landed in Big Bay Santo in 1606 and the population was massive there mm-hmm. um, and of course if you speak to the churches and if you speak to the Spanish government today they say oh de Quiroz he introduced Christianity and the light to Vanuatu do, 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 stuff right. like that but if you speak to descendants of the people who were in Big Bay in 1606, <laughs> you get a very different story. Right. And interesting enough, the, the ones who have the stories about that mm. don't live in Big Bay anymore. No, they no. were taken out over a hundred years ago from the area, and they live in another part of Santo. But they still have stories about De Quiros's 1606 visit and all the problems that they had afterwards, and they're still scared that he's going to come back. Mm. So any time that a north wind comes in, the old people from who know the stories because uh, they they, they uh, have a story about uh, De Quiros. They call him Hapuara. Right. 
son, son Apollana, spirit of the North Wind. And every time he comes in there, afraid he's coming back. So they sort of do these. They would traditionally would do these rituals to try and make sure that he wouldn't come back. Wait, was it know? was it because it <laughs> because, was was it yeah. because of the of you know diseases that they were bringing in? So that's why they would be. A little bit well, what, it, what it was was they, they found they found um, they found he killed a lot of people when he was there, mm. disrupted rituals, kidnapped the son of a chief, mm. uh, and then after he left, the problems still went on. Mm. So I suspect what happened was that there was probably a massive uh, episode of dysentery that swept through the area, probably killed a lot of people mm. and stuff. So that's so that's the kind of story that you hear from the people who were on the receiving end of the light of exploration and Christianity. Right. <laughs> you know, so it's a, it's a very different story. But anyway, some people nowadays, modern economists will say, oh, the population rate of Vanuatu, which is now 2.9%, mm -hmm. which is relatively high in worldwide terms, people from some of the big organizations overseas will say, oh, the population rate is too high and mm -hmm. stuff. But look, the population of Vanuatu now is only about a third of what it was before the white people came. Mm -hmm. So the way that I see it is you know, a high population in percentage of high increase is actually just making up for lost time and lost ancestors of people who were wiped out by European diseases. Like, yeah, I guess that's I mean, so. The depopulation in Vanuatu, yeah. Yeah. Would, would, that Sorry, would, would that apply as well? I mean, I know we're talking about Vanuatu, but would, would it be a similar, um, you know, correlations and what was happening in, to, throughout the entire Pacific? Uh, in some islands of the Pacific, it was it was bad like that as well. But other areas like New Guinea, the population and maybe the Solomons, the depopulation rates were not so great, I and mean, they were it was, it was restricted to particular areas. But Vanuatu was like one of the worst case scenarios mm. for for this depopulation thing, uh, because here you go from a population mm. of uh, probably six to eight hundred thousand, maybe a million. You know, by the late 1920s, nearly the mm. population of the whole of the archipelago of Vanuatu was down to forty thousand people. Wow. Uh, that is a lot. And so you had you, you you had you had hundreds of thousands of people wiped out, huh. and they were wiped out by mainly by introduced European diseases mm. combined with then blackbirding, introduction mm. of alcohol, mm. rifles, firearms, and then also the fact that okay, Christianity comes in at a time when European diseases mm. were already beginning to spread. And some of the early missionaries or Samoan teachers actually brought diseases in with them. Right. And some of the chiefs on China, et cetera, and other others were saying, hey, you know, okay, you, you, it's nice that you can come and give us stick tobacco and things like that, but you brought death with you. Right. This happened in other areas of the Pacific. I mean, there was one area, I think, up in the Caroline Islands, mm. up in the Central Pacific, where... Uh, the, the churches came in and not on purpose, but unknowingly brought in European diseases with them, dysentery, measles, influenza, uh, and stuff. It killed so many people that the people converted to Christianity mm. and gave up their idols, uh, not their idols, their traditional objects mm. to the missionary uh, saying, please uh, tell your God not to, not to kill us. Right. You know? right. uh, so, I mean, what happened when you had Look, so you've got Vanuatu today, mm -hmm. which as of <laughs> Tuesday of this week on the, let me just check on this, uh, um, 
Uh, let me just check on the, the, the date. Monday, right. on the 20th of April, the United Nations estimated that the population of Vanuatu was 305,663. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if 150 years ago, right. the population was 600,000, 800,000, 900,000, a million, million and a half, yeah. we don't know. <laughs> uh, um, 90 years ago, the population was only 40,000. We've got 138 different languages in Vanuatu. Mm-hmm. All those languages and all those cultures have survived from just 40,000 people. Mm-hmm. So it just shows you it's probably one of the world's greatest stories of cultural, uh, linguistic and cultural survival. So I, I it's guess... It's just amazing. And I, the fact that the population... <laughs> I guess my my linking onto what you just you know hold onto that thought, but the, moving on to like the the question about the COVID nineteen and how do we survive that as as a nation? Um, maybe not just Vanuatu, but you know other Melanesian countries. Do you see a correlation? Do you see a pattern there that, or is there? A, yeah, is there a common pattern there that people can kind of you know look back at the history and said, hey. You know what? We we have gone through all of this. We can survive by through our cultural practices. Yeah, what's happened? Yes, yeah. I know. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good question. I know what you mean. Mm-hmm. Look, in the early 1970s, uh, I can remember when some of the earlier big cruise boats were coming in to Vila, mm-hmm. like in 1973. You had the cruise boats would come in, the first big tourist boats, and a week after they left. Mm. between a week and a 10 days after they left, the whole of Vila would be down with the flu. Mm. And it was called Sick Blanc Tourist. It was <laughs> called Sick Blanc Tourist, you know, yeah. yeah. And it was just, well, you see, by that time, it wasn't killing anybody. Uh, the interesting thing with populations, and now cruise boat comes in and it doesn't affect anybody. Uh, well, except <laughs> unless there's anybody with cor- coronavirus right. or COVID-19 on right. the cruise boat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Polynesian, uh, so Pacific Islanders have been able to adapt very quickly mm. to these over the last century or so to these outside diseases. You've got the main things that killed people off in Vanuatu and other Pacific Islands uh, in the old days were the first wave of infections was dysentery from the earlier sex, Tonga, Rotima. When they first came in, mm-hmm. 25% of all age groups were died from mm-hmm. that. I mean, in Fiji in 1875, they had a massive measles epidemic mm-hmm. that killed hundreds of people. But the thing is, what happens is after that, you find that the populations get really quite resistant to it. They'll mm. still get the sicknesses, but they won't necessarily die. Influenza was a real problem. Right. Uh, you get boats from the outside will come into an island, and they'll spread influenza. And that could be really serious when it first hit. And smallpox, right. of course. Mm. You had smallpox on Eremango. Yes. Yeah, and that was introduced on purpose to try and kill off the population so that people could get uh, the, sa- uh, the white people could get the sandalwood easier. All sorts of stuff. But anyway, what you find is the Pacific Islanders, being very pretty tough people, right. very adaptive, <clears throat> developed to a certain amount of resistance to these things. Then you get the difference is you get these really big pandemics. Mm-hmm. Which, like is, the which is what we have right COVID-19. now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and what's happening is it's interesting is that this is coming at exactly a hundred years to the year 
for when the previous big pandemic finished huh. in the Pacific. And that was the so-called Spanish flu epidemic, which started in 1918 right. Right. and lasted until 1920. Uh, and the Pacific was hit in some areas pretty badly by the Spanish, by the Spanish flu. Vanuatu wasn't. Okay, so um, some more but, was. Uh, uh, some, some other areas were. Yeah. So I guess uh, the Pacific Island and Samoa, I think that they were quite impacted by that. Yeah, yeah. Then Samoa, mm-hmm. where you had where you had this, uh, it's funny in American Samoa. Right. Um, this happened to American Samoa. There weren't any fatalities, mm-hmm. but in the other part, the other Samoa, uh, fatalities amongst. Um, Samoan troops, they had some New Zealand, in the rest, they had New Zealand and Samoan troops together in a camp in, in, in uh, I think it was Apia, or near Apia. Mm. 25% of the Samoan troops died. Yeah. 20, 20 to 25. But none of the New Zealanders uh, 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 died. Mm. But... What happened, interesting, that Spanish flu epidemic, you know, it's a bit puzzling why it's called Spanish flu, right. because it looks as if it actually originated in the United States in a military mm. camp in Kansas okay. in the United States in 1918, and then spread very rapidly. Um, but press media at the time, uh, they, they sort of cut it out of the media, they, those connections. And during World War II, it came out at the be, the end of World War One right. in 1918, when all these nations were fighting Germany, mm. um, and Spain was not involved in World War One, mm. uh, and so the only newspapers that were not censored with news about the epidemic right. were the Spanish newspapers, uh, because the military censors for the other countries didn't censor the Spanish newspapers. So everybody thought that it was. So if they wanted to get any news about the influenza outbreak, most of the public had to read the Spanish newspapers or get the get it from get the news from Spain. And so it became called the Spanish flu. But huh. it did not originate in Spain. Mm. Um, it looked like it originated in the United States and then spread very rapidly around the world. It infected, it's thought, about a third of the world's population, mm. a third or a quarter, and it killed forty million people over a two year period. In the Pacific I mean, it killed 12,000 people in Australia, right. particularly around Melbourne. Melbourne, I think, was the worst area uh, that, that, that was hit. Mm. Uh, but uh, the interesting thing about that was the Spanish flu, so-called Spanish flu, mm. and that tended to affect young adults that were very healthy mm. because that kind of flu was a thing that uh, uh, made the bodies strong immune system fight against itself mm. and kill you sort of thing. This this one, yeah. the present one, uh, uh, tends to attack older people mm. who've already got some other types of illnesses or people who have uh, other types of illnesses. Mm. It tends to attack those who have a lowered immune system. So it's a slightly different different thing. But medical studies have shown mm. that Pacific Islanders are not... I know people in the Pacific are very worried right. about this mm-hmm. because of the past history of epidemics right. and stuff. Uh, and, but medical studies have shown that Pacific Islanders are no, not more 
no more susceptible uh, to it than other parts of the world. I'll mm. just read you the concluding um, the concluding sentence of a scientific study on the uh, 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 um, the way it was an article published in 2017 uh, in mm. a, a really obscure medical journal. It was written by a group of scientists. And uh, it's it's on how Pacific Islanders have managed to uh, become less and less affected by uh, epidemics. Right. And the, the article is entitled Rapid Mortality Transition of Pacific Islands mm. in the 19th Century. And it shows how early epidemics in the Pacific killed a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And later ones, not so many as Pacific Islanders entered sort of the global world mm. and developed a certain amount of immunity hmm. and stuff. And the conclusion of the article uh, is, is, is uh, well, one of the major sentences is, quote, we consider the present-day risk of mass mortality from newly emerging infectious diseases is unlikely to be greater on Pacific islands than in other geographical areas or other parts of the world. Yeah. So, uh, so I think the Pacific Islanders are in a, yeah, a can, relatively lucky position in a way yeah. if they can keep it out of their countries. Yeah. Can we can we focus on why do you think that's that's the case? Why are they, you know, susceptible to be a little more or less than the rest of the world? Uh, well, maybe not necessarily less, right. uh, but I think in general, Pacific Islanders tend to live healthier lifestyles than people in some areas of China mm. and the United States mm. and in other areas where it's, they're being very effective at the moment. Wait, would, that be dis- um, would that despite uh, the high, high rate of NCDs? Would that, do you think that that has... Could it be any... If, if it does... Because I think the biggest, one of the biggest concerns is about how a lot of people... Uh, in the Pacific, have a high rate of NCD, and um, the fact that our healthcare system is very poor. Yeah, um, yes, it's, that's the scary bit. Right there, Mary. That's the scary bit because it seems that suppose you fat fat big one <laughs> if you're really fat if you're obese, and suppose you've got sick blood sugar. Yeah. You've got. Uh, uh, diabetes type 2 and things yeah. like that mm. that's the kind of people that uh, uh, COVID-19 might go for because right. you have an impaired immune system mm. uh, and those are the kinds of people that will possibly not uh, uh, react to if they're infected uh, uh, um, uh, will not have a very good time right. Look, this this new thing is it's very infectious right. but the mortality rates are very are very low That's okay. the thing. it's very infectious mm. but the mortality rates are very low it doesn't like sunlight I guess I guess so um, I, I think what I was interested in what you said before about how this is exactly a hundred years and then we have another uh, pandemic of you know a larger you know, worldwide. What what do you th- why do you think yeah. that is? I mean, ex- exactly a hundred years after this, and then it almost seems to me like now it's affecting instead of affecting the younger people, it's going for the older people with you know uh, underlying yeah. health yeah, yeah, issues. Yeah. yeah, this one this this one is 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 different from the one a hundred years ago. This one's 
targeting a different part of the system. Hmm. It's almost, you know, it's it's almost as if <laughs> how can we how can one deal with this at a philosophical level? Right. The real plague, from the point of view of the earth itself, hmm. you know, hmm. and nature, right? In nature, you know, I'm trying to be not scientific here. I'm trying to be more profound than science, right? From the point of view of nature hmm. and the earth, the real threat hmm. to nature. Right. And Earth may be humans. Hmm. <laughs> I yeah. We may be the plague species. We may be the plague that the Earth needs to breathe to control. Hmm. And at at a, at a at a profound level, you might you know this is if you, you know you back in your village you'll hear old people right. maybe talking like this. Oh yeah. You know, if the Earth gets fed up with What's been done to me? Destroying right. the environment, mm. destroying the marine environment, the land environment, the air environment. Mm. You know, uh, a race for money and right. greed and and everything, and everything is going too fast, yes. and it's destroying everything. Yes. And if nature and the earth mm. have a heart and a soul, they may have just said. Enough. Enough. Let's yes. just clear things out a little bit. You know? So, so from, yeah. from, uh, from that's that's from, not a scientific view, but science never sometimes is not as profound as it needs to be. Right. Yeah. And from a from a cultural, I guess, from an anthropological point of view, um, you know, I, I you know, as as an indigenous person, I can I can understand what you're talking about because you have to live within the diverse, you know, biodiverse way of living f off from land in vice versa. So how, yes. how, how is this yes. teaching us as the world in general? I mean, I think the Pacific Islanders understand that because that's their livelihood. And in terms of, you know, we've been yes. arguing and we've been trying to scream the top of our lungs about climate change because it's killing our livelihood. Um, it's the very thing that we survive on understanding living of our land, um, it's the only way we know how to survive. So with this COVID-19, what is the bigger picture here? I mean, I know you've touched a little bit on that, but from an anthropological point of view, what's the bigger picture here? Do we go back as, as, as Pacific Islanders and even Wanta people, do we go back to the way that we know how to live best and, and write, this, write this way through or what do we do? Uh, I think you're right there, Mary. I think, in a way, Pacific Islanders could possibly <clears throat> understand the deeper implications of this more than peoples from the the, 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 the overdeveloped part of the world. Mm. You know, uh, because you've all been brought up, all Pacific Islanders have been brought up in proper ways of living, mm. you know. Uh, except for those who are now stuck in the towns, you know, right, you've right. all been brought up in public ways of living. You have to look after your marine environment. You have mm. to look after your land environment. Uh, you can't destroy this. You can't destroy that. And yet, the rest of the world, the kind of development model that they are promoting, mm. is over destructive. It's unsustainable, and it's just leading the whole of the planet to the edge of a precipice mm. from which the planet and peoples may never be able to recover. The way that I see, I always try and put a, a good side to these things, is that maybe this will give 
this pandemic will give the Pacific nations mm. and leaders an opportunity to say to the rest of the world, look, <laughs> wake up. This is a warning call to all of you big nations overseas to stop what you're doing mm. and try and lead us, the rest of the world, back to a respectful form of living that will provide well for future generations without destroying the future, mm. without destroying the future, you know. Mm. Uh, because this is what the rest of the world is doing. The, the whole type of development model they're promoting is, you know, uh, 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 is absolutely destructive you know, and very dangerous. Mm. And yet they don't see beyond the end of their nose because they're so obsessed uh, with, I mean, I can remember one, an old friend who was a chief who had been born in custom mm. uh, uh, from one of the Northern Islands. He'd been born in custom and then his family had converted to Christianity and he'd, and he'd converted. He went overseas uh, for his first trip overseas. It was the early 1980s, shortly after independence. And I remember him coming back and he came to see me in my office in the Coke Center. And he said, I've been to the, uh, there's a, a place for a white man. I think he went to Sydney. And he said, it's very interesting what he said, Mary. Mm. Very smart, very profound. He said, they don't have one God like we do. Mm. They have two. Huh. One, they call time and they put it on their wrist. Mm. And the other, they call money and they worship it above all else. Right. You know? That's this is the thing. quite profound, it, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and the Pacific will get through this. We'll get through this crisis. I mean, um, the current medical thing. Uh, it may be a little bit rough in some areas. Mm. The lucky thing, though, about Pacific Islanders is, is Pacific Islanders. They are island. If you can keep it out of your mm. island, mm. Uh, you know, then you're okay. If you can, if it's if it gets to one island. Uh, just make sure that nobody from that island goes to another island, right. etc. Um, right. But uh, 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 people will get through it. These mm. things, very often people will think, oh, it's the end of the world. No, it's not. But look, this is a time, I think, when when uh, Pacific nations and Pacific mm -hmm. leaders, chiefs and everybody can say to the rest of the world, look, you people have got this on. You know? right. And the thing is, these things keep coming out of China, unfortunately. Yeah. Swine flu, right. avian flu, and now this. They're all coming out of China. What's happened in China is they've overdeveloped too fast. Yes. Too many people squeezed into yes. a small area. Uh, mm -hmm. And the, these, these type of diseases keep coming out of those areas. It's interesting is you get similar populations in India, mm. but... India is mostly vegetarian country, and you oh. tend not to get these types of diseases starting in countries that are mainly vegetarian. I didn't uh, think about that. The Chinese situation, that everybody's into all this different type of meat. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. So, uh, and traditional diet. Right. Look, traditional diet in Vanuatu. It's the best. Is really healthy. Yam, taro, mm. manioc, all that sort of stuff. And not too much meat. You know, you yes. eat pig, but not, you know, mm. times of feasts and things like that. They now, yeah. White rice with the tin fish. Yes. You know, that's a really unhealthy diet. Mm. Modern diet, 
that's being promoted in many, that seems to be being promoted in many areas of Vanuatu mm. uh, across the Pacific, white rice and tin fish or whatever, that's really unhealthy. Right. That's not a way to bring up your families and stuff because the thing is also you eat like that and it promotes sick blood sugar, yes. uh, diabetes type 2, white yes. rice uh, because of the way that the, the nutrients have been taken out to make mm. the rice white right. so that it looks nicer and tastes sweeter. Uh, it actually promotes diabetes. Yes, so, so maybe yeah. maybe this is uh, almost... brown rice. Brown rice is the health. Yeah, so maybe this is this is a, a you know um, a warning for Pacific Island you know islands about changing the diet back and focusing on the tr traditional way of eating instead of focusing on white rice and processed food. Um, maybe in, in some yeah. ways, this is also allowing Pacific Islanders and uh, Vanuatu, for instance, that we need to focus more on uh, agriculture and the way of how we, you know, our health and way of living. Um, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, it's really, it's really, uh, it's, as we, as we said, it's not rocket science. It's no, very it's simple not. and straightforward. Mm. You know, you, you already had. Uh, Pacific Islanders already had a very healthy diet, mm. you know. Uh, and if you, if if you're going to change to a diet that's white rice with some noodles, noodles and tin fish or whatever, mm. that's not a healthy diet at all. No. <laughs> so, and the thing is, you've got to you have to you have to buy it. You have right. to pay for it. Mm. You know, you actually you're actually paying paying to poison yourself. Right, <laughs> you know, yeah. So it's I, really, it's really sort of stupid in a way. And yeah. yet you've got food. Yeah, you've got food growing on your island. Yes, yeah. and you throw you, um, you throw anything. And you stick, thing, yeah. you stick anything in the ground and it grows. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You can plant it and then you got to run because it may it may, it may knock you over. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, um, yeah. It's fantastic. I mean, this, the thing that I. I was very fortunate when I first came to Vanuatu, mm. the old New Hebrides. I first came nearly 50 years ago. Mm. Uh, in those days, Vila was very small. There was only 3,000 people in Vila. Now there's 30,000. It's massive. Huh? But I went out to the Northern Islands. I went to Malakula. My main work was originally, my main focus was working with the custom people. Mm. My main interest was working with custom people up in the bush. Middle bush, South Malakula. Mm. <clears throat> Middle bush, Northwest Malakula. People who were still living in full custom. And my gosh, Mary, they were healthy. Mm. I mean, really fit. You know, mm. they weren't buying any food from the stores or anything like that because there were no stores. Right, <laughs> right. You know, really fit, really healthy. Mm. Uh, and yet down on the coast, you found people... <clears throat> were not as fit and not as healthy. They were buying food from the stores. They were working to earn money mm. to take this money to a store to buy food that poisoned yourself. I mean, yeah. that sounds a bit crazy, but that's what was happening. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, I'm not saying give up white rice or tin fish completely. Mm. Uh, you know, it's just saying keep things in perspective. Right. Have the basis of most of your diet have traditional root crops, yam, taro, manioc, breadfruit, everything, uh, things like that, <clears throat> that are part of your normal diet. <clears throat> so Whereas your peoples have developed over hundreds of generations mm. to adapt to that diet. Mm. Rice is not a Pacific thing. 
Hmm. So I think Asian populations yeah. have developed over many generations to adapt to rice. That's right. They're better at it, you know. Hmm. <clears throat> I think Americans at the moment are adapting to hamburgers. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I guess my my one of my questions that I've been dying to ask you, um, given your knowledge in the traditional Let's talk a little bit about the traditional economy. Do you think that that can exist at this time, um, particularly in some parts of the Melanesian Islands and in Vanuatu? We know it. Um, if the borders are closed up, everything is, you know, people are not, um, you know, jobs are cutting back. Um, do you think that that's one thing that, because it's already in existence, I mean, it's already there, it exists. Do you think that's, a way that maybe the government or people, the chiefs in the community can probably encourage that to be a form of way of living for now instead of the cash economy? Yeah, thank you, Mary. That's really good. That's uh, a really good question and it's really important. I personally think that uh, traditional economic systems have been in the past and in some areas still are very effective. Mm. They're more stable than the modern economic system. And they're the things that give you the power to resist problems from the outside world. So I'm not saying you need to give up the money economy completely, mm. but what I'm, what I think populations in Melanesia should do is they should step back and they should think about life mm. and they should think about what's really important in life and they should realize that money should not be the real aim of everybody because mm. the thing is the way that the modern development system promotes money it's almost as if they're promoting it's almost as if the modern system is like a drug dealer right. and the drug that they're promoting is money mm. and the thing is I mean when I was first living in Vanuatu Stuff. I, was, I was living and working with populations who didn't use money. Mm. The Bush custom peoples, they didn't use money. Mm. I mean, but they had perfectly good lives, you know. And traditional economic systems can take care of them. I mean, everybody was talking about, I mean, they were all obsessed with Tusker pigs or money mats and things like that. That's sort of normal. Right. <laughs> um, but they could survive very well without modern money. Mm. Okay, well, nowadays, nations, it seems, need to work with uh, modern money. But the thing is what they need to realize is that the modern economic system is not stable. Mm, uh, right. And if you rely too much on it, it can collapse. And if you rely on it completely, you can collapse with it. So Melanesia and other Pacific Islanders are very lucky is that they can still have their traditional agriculture, normal agricultural mm -hmm. systems as the foundation. What governments in the Pacific and Melanesia, particularly where there's a lot of land, right. should be doing is promoting agriculture to feed yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, feed mm -hmm. yourself and feed your families. You don't, you know, I mean, uh, heck, you can buy, you can buy uh, stuff from the stores. Uh, now and then, but you shouldn't have to rely just live on stuff from the stores. Right. If you're just living on stuff from the stores, you're not going to be building up healthy children or grandchildren. No, no. And you're actually poisoning them, and you're paying for it. Right. You're paying for it. But if you grow your own food, mm. uh, if you grow your own food, I mean, I was brought up like this in the West of England in the 1950s. Mm. My parents, who had seen the devastation from World War II, mm. realized that one shouldn't necessarily rely mm. on, uh, 
all the things that are being promoted. So my father said, and my mother said to us children, this was, this was 70 years ago. Right. And so, right, we're not going to bother with any of that. We're going to raise all our own food right. and not going to have electricity or TV or radio. So we're from the 1950s. We were all brought up. Mm. Raised, we raised all our own food. We didn't have to go to a store. We didn't have electricity on purpose. Mm. We didn't have TV on purpose. And my father said, that's a really good foundation in life because once you grow up, he said, if you ever do, mm. <laughs> when your brain begins to work, but if it ever does, mm. <laughs> then you, once you've got this strong foundation, then when you get older, mm. you'll be able to scale everything. You'll be able to balance everything. You'll be able to see mm. what is essential in life and what is a luxury. Right. And what you find is mm. that most stuff that's being promoted today is just luxuries, mm. not necessities of life. No, no. So the world is mm. the whole direction the world is going in is going in the wrong direction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the idea of living in a traditional economy, it's almost, it almost is the same. It's aligns with the bio, living in a biodiversity as setting of, of um, life itself, because you're teaching your children, um, you know, the real essence of growing your own food. And, but at the same time, you know, in, in places like the Pacific, you're teaching your children about the traditions, way of weaving mats and, bringing up your kids in the, in the manner that we should. Um, so it almost, it's, it's a whole form of life that should be. Um, and so... Yes, yes, yes. Everything, everything's integrated. The mm -hmm. good thing about the traditional system is everything is linked to everything else. Right. And you're talking about mats. They're very, I mean, mm -hmm. in your part of North Pentecost, you, you, you weave those red mats. Those are money. Right. That's money. Mm -hmm. you know? yeah. yeah, the smart thing about the system in North Pentecost and central Pentecost is you can make your own money. You can the <laughs> pigs. You can weave money mats. You, you you can make your own money, and you're the ones that put the put the uh, value on it. That's yes. great. You, yes. know, you don't have to rely on unstable countries overseas mm. in Europe or the United States or China, where their basis for their financial value system may collapse overnight so how do we how do we as it did during the global financial crisis of 2008 yeah so how do we how do we do that as a policy particularly let's say let's talk about Vanuatu how can that become a policy in Vanuatu how can that be implemented so that because these things are going to happen well you know whether we like it or not and we do have a system that has existed for thousands and thousands of years. So why don't we put that in place? How do we do that? Yes. Well, the thing is, there have been attempts to do it. I mean, there was the Culture Center project, the Custom Economy project, mm. which was uh, started in 2004 and finished in 2012. It was at the time when, uh, I mean, the government declared the, year 2000, the years 2007 and 2008 were declared as the years of the traditional economy. There was a promotion there, but, but it sort of fizzled out after that because what happened was I can remember when those things were happening and it was really good, really good initiatives. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, we've already got our economic systems. We can combine the two. You can combine the traditional with the modern. Right. But the traditional systems are the ones that give you a strong foundation. Mm -hmm. The modern systems are like the wind, they come and go. Right. Um, and I can remember when the, when the cultural centers project was going. And, and like when, uh, um, 
when Tirago was going mm. in North Pentecost and stuff, people were some people were supportive. Other people, particularly in the outside world, were going, "Oh, that's really yeah. now that's not serious and all this sort of stuff." Yeah. Ha ha ha! And I remember when we were when the Cope Center was promoting the the, the, the traditional economic systems, mm. you know, people overseas. I mean, I was going back and going back and forth between. Australia and Vanuatu at the time, mm. and people are here in Sydney going, like, oh, that's not serious, mm. uh, blah, 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 stuff like that. And then suddenly, the global financial crisis struck. Yeah. You know? yeah. And suddenly, you didn't hear the big people overseas complaining anymore. They, they went quiet. Mm. Because what we were saying in the Custom Economy Project was, uh, if you rely too much on modern money, yeah. you're going to have problems because the modern system is not stable. Right. And we actually, Cope Center actually published a thing in 2005, which actually, in a way, almost predicted a global financial crisis. We called mm -hmm. it a hiccup in the publication. Right. You know, because the way that the modern economic system is structured mm. is not stable right. because of the way that it was set up. Mm. Uh, and anyway, and, and people got angry when that publication came out. I had an economist who rang me, mm. rang me after the publication. And he said, Kirk, you bastard, sorry for my French there, you bastard, you've criticized our discipline in such a way that we can't get back at you because you're probably right. And he slammed the phone down. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there were those sort of complaints and things like that. Uh, and then the global financial crisis stuck, struck yeah. and nobody, no more complaints. Right. They all uh, went quiet. Well, but then what they did uh -huh. behind the scenes, they regrouped themselves to try and and stop any new initiatives that would change the economic system. Hmm. So the big the big groups, the World Bank, the IMF, I think, uh, they're not actually aware that there are other are traditional economic systems around hmm. because they think only their economists only think in terms of numbers and modern money. Right. They have no knowledge about or about traditional economic systems. They don't even realize that these things exist. Mm. But any time that people like that or organizations like that hear about a new system right. or what they think is a new system that threatens their money-based system, mm. then, they, then they try and squash it. Mm. So what seemed to happen after the global financial crisis was that there was an increased pressure from the outside world on Vanuatu to adopt more and more and more the modern economic system. Hmm. You know, just focus on money. And the thing is, if you focus on money, you're not focusing on the welfare and health of your people. The well-being of you're the people. You're just focusing yeah. on money. Hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So it's yeah. not really measuring the well-being um, of the people themselves. It's basically just based on no, some no, some no, no, idea no. What outside. Be, what they should be measuring. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They should be measuring really important things like contentment, right. security of land tenure, right. respect for your elders, respect mm. for future generations, respect for the environment, mm. and things. But if you if you have an economy that is based solely on counting money, right. you know, then you're, you're, you're going the wrong way because the money is not permanent. No. The money, the foundation, how now you may say, foundation long money, you know, strong. You know, strong, it, yeah. Money, the modern economic system is like, it's built, the modern economic system has built a very flash house, mm. but they built it on the sand beach 
below the high tide mark. Right. <laughs> so right. periodically, a king tide will come in mm. and wipe it, wipe it out. And this is what happens. It's a regular thing, mm. almost like cyclones. Yes. Uh, but there's a regular cycle in the modern economic system where it will run okay worldwide for a while, and then it collapses. Right. And then it rebuilds itself, and then it collapses. And then it rebuilds itself, and then it collapses. And, and I so think, there will be another global financial mm, crisis, yeah. Yes, mm. and I think the big one of the big um, things that we uh, often, I guess, when we talk about discussions about that is that it with the um, money, it has a big hole in the middle. There's always a division in it, you know. Um, which is what we see, you know, the poor, the, the those who have more and those who have less. Um, so that always never really, it never really works. Um, and so you see those appearing a little bit in some of the Pacific Islands where, you know, some people tend to have a little bit more than others. And, and I think that comes out a lot in our politics in that sense. So I think the traditional economy, as we talked about before, it really covers the whole holistic way of thinking and the way of living. Um, so maybe if there is a hope for the Pacific Islanders, it's something that, you know what, you, we already have that. Um, places like the Melanesian countries, you yes, already yes. have that. Yeah. All, just yeah. all you need yeah. to do is tap yeah, back exactly. into that. Yeah. Hmm. Yes, exactly. It, it gets, and, and maybe this health crisis, this pandemic crisis, will hopefully give Pacific Island nations a time to think, mm. sit back and think and re-examine the ways that they're going. Mm. Because Pacific Island nations, with just a little bit of extra help, I mean, they've already got the stuff that most people actually in the rest of the world actually want. Mm. They have land, you yes. have, you know, you grow your own food, yes. uh, or, or whatever. You've got most of the things that people want. But the rest of the modern world is trying to force Pacific Islanders into developing into uh, nations where uh, the Pacific Islanders have to follow what the what the rest of the world wants. Right, you know? and, and mostly depend um, depend yeah, on yeah. depend on them, which is not what we should be doing in in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah exactly. What, what, yeah, what they're doing is is introducing money addiction mm. as a sort of a, it's an insidious sort of a, the real pandemic. Okay. At the moment we've got COVID-19 mm. as the pandemic, mm. but the really big pandemic that's been going on for oh, wow. quite a while in the mm. Pacific is the other pandemic and it's the money pandemic. Right. And you can get, what we call it, sick, you, if you're not careful, you get sick, long money. That's right. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's happened before in some areas of the world. Suddenly, you get people who get these obsessions. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm in 2008, I saw an old friend of mine, a custom chief, who finally converted to Christianity and was living down on the coast. And I had a message saying that he wanted to see me, so I went to see him. Mm. This was in 2008. Uh, and he said, Naomi, Chen, now you may want the money, 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 and he started shaking. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and I said, "Hey, what's happened? To, what's happened to Chief Sanza?" To mm. some of the people over there, and they said, "Say, so did you must let me cast some sick long money." But it's true. You get it. You have to. Yeah, that yeah. is very true. And the thing is, it's not just in the Pacific. Yeah, right. on the island of Ibiza in the Mediterranean, where I was living for a decade, mm. you've got people in the interior of the island there, mm. traditional peasants and stuff like that. 
who have some of them have told me they don't want to go down to the coast because <clears throat> in the 1960s tourism started and it changed everything on the coast. Mm. Uh, some of the old people in the interior don't want to go down to the coast anymore. And one of them told me a few years ago. He said, uh, he said we don't want to go down there because there's sa febre de sauce down mm. there. Sa febre de sauce in their language means money fever, huh. sick long money. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and these old peasants have said that sa febre de sauce, money fever. Sa febre, febre is fever. Mm. De sauce, uh, that's like the French word sou, is an old term for money. Right. Uh, money fever. <clears throat> They said it's destroyed our younger generation. Mm. Destroyed, our, it's taken them away from the land. Right. They're now living down on the coast, and all that. <clears throat> well, they follow them with grow money. Right. <clears throat> They're following the road of money, and they they've left their land. So, so, their land. so, so in a way, you know, so it's a, lost. yeah. So in a in a big, you know, the big picture here is obviously. With, you know, the destruction here is the idea of money, living of money, making more money and, you know, destroying the environment by using up, or, you know, all the stuff that destroys the environment. And here we go, we'll recycle back to the earth is saying, ah, I think we've had enough of this. So, um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. yeah. So can you tell us, you know, we started off this conversation with that probably introducing yourself and what was your, you know, your, your work in Vanuatu and how did you, you come to be very familiar with the culture, not just in Vanuatu, maybe around the Pacific? Ah, well, me and once I've been nothing. I, I would say I'm still learning. One, one of the things about Vanuatu is the cultures are so complex, so fascinating mm. and so amazing mm. that you could spend your whole life trying to study cultures there and you, just as they're putting you in your grave you suddenly you still realize you're still a child and you're still learning <laughs> and as they're putting you as they're wrapping the, your fun, the funerary mat around you to put you in, in your grave right. your hand reaches out and says hey there's just one last question I wanted to ask you <laughs> and they put the earth on top of you you know you have, yeah. The more, the longer you stay in the Pacific, right. <clears throat> at least in Vanuatu, <clears throat> the more you realize you don't know. Because mm. there's so many cultures, and they're so fascinating. Mm. And yet, I fear that sick long money and mm. modern technology, which mm. is very useful but is very addictive, right. is actually taking the youngest generation mm. away from the land and away from their languages and away from their cultures. Mm. Well, you stop hanging on mobile phone no more now. Right. You know, right. this is the thing that I noticed last year when I went back is this, this, this thing where everybody's uh, hanging on to their mobile phones. That's useful. Mm -hmm. you know? Yes, send a message. Yes, you meet to me long midnight long. You know, you send your old secret message. I said, right. yeah, useful for that. And also useful for sending news around when a cyclone's coming in or there's a health mm. thing. But the technology is very addictive. Right, it and is. And it takes you, if you become too addicted to it, mm. You lose sight of reality. And what I've always said to people in Vanuatu, if you don't learn your language, if you don't learn your culture, you know, no matter you school, how much go, 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 you got how much PhD, go, go, go. Because mm. you miss them, but you lose them, because I'm blue. That, that's you know? true. So do you think so you've that... Got to, you've got to hold tight to your land. Mm. Yeah. Do you think that the people... Um, as we're going to be wrapping up uh, in our discussion, do you think that the people understand the reality of what they're facing now and what the future looks like, um, particularly in maybe in the Pacific, Vanuatu, for instance? Okay. 
uh, I hope that some of the I hope some people might be thinking about that now mm-hmm. because what may come out of this after the COVID-19 thing, um, but it comes in waves. This is the first wave at the moment. And like the Spanish flu, the Spanish flu 100 years ago came in three waves. Mm-hmm. So the COVID-19 thing may come in two or three waves. That's the way of these big ep- 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 epidemics. Mm-hmm. So even though you think you might be okay now, you have to be prepared for the next wave and stuff. Yeah. So that's uh, something that Pacific nations need to be aware of. But once you've overcome the first wave, you've learnt a ways to come over the second and third waves. Right. Okay. But hopefully this may teach Pacific nations to be very careful about over-reliance on certain things that are maybe becoming too overly important for the modern economic system. I'm talking about tourism. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the cruise boats mm-hmm. uh, who are, that are, are actually, uh, those of us who started being concerned about the problems of cruise boats mm-hmm. well over 10 years or, or, or more ago, mm-hmm. and people were criticizing us if we said anything against them, because uh, very often people looked upon cruise boat tourism as a form of foreign aid to the Pacific, right. you know. Uh, and when we were saying, well, look, there's a downside to it. Right. Um, now people are realizing that maybe the cruise boat, the big days of the cruise boat tourism industry in the Pacific may be over. Maybe over, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because of what, what this thing has done is it has exposed right. uh, the fact that cruise boats tourism can actually be very dangerous to yes. Pacific Island nations. Yes. You know, uh, even Australia is finding that out, the situation yeah. with this boat, the Ruby Princess from mm. Barnival Cruises. Mm. Uh, I mean, there's been 600 people that have become infected mm. from that one boat. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's here in Australia. Mm. Um, and that boat has finally only left Australia today. Oh, yes. Yesterday. Yes, yes. I think yesterday. I, I just yeah. saw that yeah, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you see, the way the way the cruise boat industry has developed, it's developed like the, the cruise boats themselves become like floating. With the term you often use is a petri dish. Petri dish is the use yeah. the term you use for if you're working in a scientific laboratory mm-hmm. and you have a little glass dish in which you're mixing, or you put all these microbes for the, so that they can grow mm-hmm. uh, diseases and stuff. Uh, uh, cruise boats are almost like floating petri dishes. Right. They they are the ideal situation in which diseases can grow, because you've got a a finite number of people confined for a long period of time, ten days or two weeks, in one thing. They can't get out. Mm. So you know you've got one person who catches the flu in one end of the ship, and by the end of a few days it'll be in the other end of the ship. Right. And now the cruise boat. Things are so big. Some of them have 4,000 passengers or so. Yes. It's amazing. Yes. And also, um, it makes, maybe make, might make certain Pacific nations realize that maybe we should not place an overemphasis on relying on tourism Mm. by air as Mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. Because you see, the thing is now, for example, uh, you know, uh, one of the easiest ways to spread a pandemic is by airplane. Mm. Uh, in a uh, uh, hundred years ago, when the Spanish flu was going around, and it started in America, but it took two years mm. 
to reach the city. Nowadays, it can start, if the pandemic starts, it can start, because of airplane travel, it can start in, <laughs> say, Wuhan, and yeah. it could be in Vila the yeah. next day. The next day. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. By air travel. Right. So people need to be aware of this. Yeah. And also need to be aware of, again, I think, okay, what Pacific nations need to do to be secure for the future. You need to keep your strong foundation mm -hmm. in your own traditional agricultural system and use as much from your own culture to give yourself a strong foundation, your traditional economic systems and stuff. You can use stuff from the modern world. You can use, you can use modern economic systems, mm -hmm. but realize that those systems are not permanent that they're very fragile, like cyclones. Hmm. They can come and go. And modern money suddenly loses its value and stuff, like it during the global financial crisis. Mm -hmm. Everything gets messed up. If you rely too much on the modern world, you know, you can have a lot of, you can have a lot of problems. Right. So you maintain what you already have and promote what you already have. Mm -hmm. And ask advice from your elders and your chiefs. Yeah, and and... Tell your government, look, yes. you know, if you're promoting too much, like, you know, if you over-promote reliance on tourism, mm. then you're over-promoting something that is not stable. Right. And it could be very dangerous. Yeah, because tourism is like a two-edged sword. Mm. I remember in the 1950s, years ago in the Pacific, we used to call tourism... One new kind sugar. It's a mm. new kind of sugar. If you take it in regulated doses, small regulated doses, it's very sweet. Mm. But if you take a lot of it, it can make make your teeth rot. Mm. So if you over-rely on it, if you gear your whole economy just to rely on tourism, then you may be you know, following the wrong road because tourism also uh, is a very changeable thing. Mm -hmm. It can change direction very quickly. Mm. It goes through fashions. Uh, and you can spend an awful lot of time and money maybe trying to develop tourism facilities in one particular area. But then the tourism industry, because of other things going on worldwide, mm. may decide, okay, well, we don't want to do that. And we'll start sending tourists somewhere that's cheaper, right. so to speak. Mm. You know, so again, tourism, you know, have your uh, traditional agriculture and traditional stuff as your basis. Right. Add a, a little bit here and there, and, mm -hmm. but don't, but be aware that it is not stable, the modern stuff. What about the um, ocean? And another thing, so, ah, yeah, well, well, well. Um, that's okay if you're a bad boss or water. I suppose you're a bad boss, mm -hmm. the ocean's irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you've got to protect your ocean mm. and, the, and, and your land. Mm. Um, and the thing is, the what Pacific nations are doing is, uh, okay, the ocean is a great resource, um, but there may be certain foreign nations that are over-exploiting certain areas of the Pacific hmm. uh, and not really providing good, respectful return to the nations that they take the fish from. Hmm. You know? uh, I'm talking about the big fishing companies from overseas that are right. going through the Pacific. And also with global warming, again, you've got to think about global warming. The way that global warming will be affecting the Pacific and... Uh, 
uh, it will mean that the uh, the areas, certain types of fish will be shifting mm. uh, parts of the Pacific that they live in, like the tuna, mm-hmm. the, 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 the hordes of tuna will, mm. will move. Uh, I was at a meeting some time ago where they were saying that the Solomon Islands in the uh, future, which has a good tuna fishing and canning industry, may have to change that because... Uh, the way the global warming in the sea is going mm. is that the the, the 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 great numbers of tuna that the Solomons rely on will be shifting elsewhere because the temperatures of the sea are changing. Mm. So it's going to be harder for them. So it's everything, but everything's everything's interconnected, and right. the modern overseas developed world at, at an economic level, they don't realize that. Everything is interconnected. Right. They say they do, but they act as if they don't. Mm. And all the time, I sort of think back to warnings that traditional cultures have been trying to give mm. to the modern world for many centuries. I mean, American Indian chiefs were saying, right. you know, a hundred years ago or more in the United States, they were saying to the white man, you know, uh, you know, you can't eat money. Right. You can't eat money. You know, right. be aware. You know, and stuff. Um, and I can remember in the early 1990s, I went down to do to South America to do some work with a, a really interesting traditional culture mm. uh, living on a giant mountain in northern Colombia. They're mm. called the the Caraba, mm. or now called Cogi, the Indians. And they're the last mountain tribe of Indians anywhere in North, Central, South America. They've never converted to Christianity. Mm. They've never, they, by those in these days, they hadn't sent any, they refused to send any of their children to school. Mm. And they live very isolated on this giant mountain. Mm. And they basically spent 400 years in sort of self-isolation mm. to a certain extent to keep away from us. Mm. They have one word in their language for everybody else on earth, Mm. Except for there's there's four tribes living on this mountain, mm. and they have one word in this particular tribe have one word in their language for everybody else outside the mountain, mm. and that's Kasaugi. So that includes everybody else in the world, um, and according to their belief system, uh, they have a, a, a the, the world was created by a a big female power, which mm. they called Hava, Gautovang, Hava, Mother Gautovang, who made everything, you know, yeah. Uh, and she placed them, uh, ancestors, on this mountain and said, you are to do the custom rituals that ensure the continuity mm. of all plant, animal, and human life on Earth and the life of Earth as a living thing. Uh, she said, now I'm going to go off and I'm going to create everybody else. Mm. So she goes off and she creates the Kasaogi. That's us, Africans, Americans, mm-hmm. English, uh, Pacific Islanders, Chinese, whoever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every kind color, every kind language, every kind culture, you know, mm-hmm. except for them. And anyway, she then goes back to the mountain and she says, right, I've created the Kasaogi. Uh, but there's a mistake, been a mistake in the manufacturing process. So I apologize <laughs> to you. Uh, the Kasaogi have a tendency to be greedy. Mm-hmm. They're argumentative. They're very destructive, and their greediness may destroy, may lead to the destruction of this world that I've created. So she gave these people a series of nine signs that they had to look for. Hmm. And these people have been looking for these signs possibly for thousands of years. 
And all the signs are associated, almost all the signs are associated with climate change Mm. uh, because they show a gradual progression towards the destruction of the environment. Mm. But there's also diseases that are predicted in the... uh, in the uh, in the predictions and stuff, and I was just thinking that some of the stuff that's happening now right. follows exactly the kinds of prophecies that this 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 tribe of Indians have been following for many many centuries, and they were told, uh, according to their traditional religion, that they have to look out for these signs, and then they have to try and warn the world. Right. Once they see beyond a certain number of signs, they have to warn the world. Okay, you've got to step back and think about what you're doing because what you're doing now is wrong and you're destroying the balance upon which the world is created. And this is basically what modern development, Mm. unfortunately, has been doing. It's been destroying the balance of nature and the environment and culture and everything. Mm. And your ancestors on your island and the other ancestors, people in Vanuatu, they lived in a world where they knew everything was interconnected. Right. They weren't going to destroy their environment because they, they uh, needed to rely on that environment right. to survive. And they wanted that environment to continue for their children and their grandchildren and stuff like that. Traditional cultures are much wiser in that sense mm. than the modern world is because the modern world, unfortunately, has caught money disease, mm. long money. Mm. You know? And so they've lost their sense of perspective Uh, And I think, as I said, Pacific nations can help the world to get back to a better appreciation of what humanity as a whole Mm. really needs to do. Mm -hmm. And that's Mm. to protect. And we've only got one planet. Right. (laughs) And they say, there's no planet B. Mm. There's no planet B, as Greta Thunberg would say, uh, so to speak. Yes. what it is, is, you know what it's like in your village, if you've got um, an offender of mine from Papua New Guinea was telling me recently, you always know the end of, the end of someone's life is coming. Yeah. It's when they're really old, really old. But you see them, they're coming out of their hut. They come out of their really hut, maybe 90 or 100 years old. They come out of the hut and they start shitting mm. near where they're living. Mm. You know, and that's a sign that they're going to die very soon. Right. It's like that now in the whole world. Mm. Humanity is shitting where it lives. Right. And so you've got global warming. Mm. You've got pandemics. Mm. They're all part and parcel of the same thing. On the same thing. The way that I see it mm. is that, yeah, they're part and parcel of the same thing. Right. It's a warning to everybody mm. to step back, think, and reorganize things so that we're not so that we don't keep shitting right. in the place where we live. And that's that, basically what the modern world and the modern world is trying to trying to make Pacific Islanders do the same thing. Hmm. The modern world is trying to force Pacific Islanders to shit where you're living. Yeah. Sorry, excuse my French there. Yeah, and I guess <laughs> so what yeah. would be your last um I guess word of advice of caution to particularly to younger generation, Pacific Island generation as to as they and now, obviously, all over the Pacific Islands and New Zealand and Australia, where most of us live, here in the United States, maybe, um, what is the one thing that you want to tell us and um, in terms of our culture, in terms of who we are and and what we should be thinking about and what we should be doing in, in moving forward? 
Yeah, okay. Look, Mary, culture is what make, makes life worth living for. Mm. You know, you've got to know where, to know who you are, you need to know where you come from, because that gives you an idea of where you might be going. Mm. In Vanuatu, it's your land that gives you your identity. If you don't have land, then you don't actually exist. Mm. The way that modern development is going is they're trying to pull the modern economic system, you know, promoted by all the developers, basically wants to try and introduce the white man's type of freehold land tenure into the Pacific Island. That's really dangerous. Because mm. if you lose, if you lose your culture, it's interesting, there's actually a type of disease associated with losing your culture, which is the basis of your foundation for living. Right. You know? Mm. Um, uh, in Micronesia, in that central part of the Pacific, mm. uh, in some of the Micronesian languages, there's a particular word for that. Okay. If when somebody comes and a new developer tries to destroy your culture, and they try and tell you that your culture has no value. Unfortunately, certain certain early missionaries in Vanuatu tried to do that. Mm. They thought they were trying to make things better. Uh, but all, the modern world is doing the same thing. The modern uh, missionaries for money are trying to do the same thing. They're trying to actually destroy the basis, your basis for living. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And in some of the Micronesian languages, uh, there's a little island called Awa in. Um, a Micronesian-speaking island off of New Guinea in mm -hmm. um, that area, New Britain, Manus. There's a mm -hmm. little tiny island called Awa. Mm -hmm. And it's not Melanesians living there, it's Micronesians. It's a Micronesian sort of... How they turned up there, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But anyway, uh, they speak a Micronesian language very similar to other languages spoken in the rest of Micronesia, like Kiribati and places like that. Mm -hmm. And there they have a word in Awa, they have a name in their language, for a particular type of, how can you say, laziness or sickness that after you lose your culture, right. you, yeah, you, you, you get this, this sickness. Hmm. You get this sickness, uh, which eventually can kill you. Right. And in their language, they call it tatareri. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And this is what happens very often when the, they said that, 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 you know, you get people come in and try to destroy your culture by whatever it means. If they do that, you can catch tatareri. Mm. And that is a type of sickness which makes you think that there's no reason for living. Right. Because the whole foundation of your belief system in your life has been stolen from you, has been destroyed. And so you just will yourself to die. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so I think Pacific Islanders really need to get their act together mm. and, you know, sorry to say it like that, mm. um, you've already got so many things that the rest of the world really, you could be a real guiding light to the world. Mm. Say, look, protect your land, protect your language, protect your culture. We know who we are. Mm. Do you know who you are? That's the thing, as mm. you say to the outside world. Mm. You know, I mean, I can remember people, some early people telling me uh, in the 1970s about, you know, we were having talks with, I was talking with somebody from, I think it was from Epi, mm. nearly 50 years ago. Uh, and he said, uh, you know why they, you know why the white people keep coming here? You know? And I said, why? Mm. And he said, 
because they don't have any land where they are. Mm. You know, land is your identity. White people don't have any land. That's why they have to come and try and steal ours. Mm. <laughs> well, now it's not just white people trying to steal land. It's Asians. It's everybody. Businesses, mm. this and that, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So hold tight to your land. Hold tight to your languages and your cultures. Mm. For Pacific Islanders to realize that that's your real safe foundation. Mm. That's what, that's, all of that is your safety in times of potential disaster. Right. You know. You can take bring things from the introduce things from the outside world, certain types of medicines and stuff. But the thing is, I mean, heck, with medicines, I mean, now you know what it's like in, in the central hospital in Vanuatu. Right. Now, most of the diseases or illnesses that the doctors are treating people for are all almost all of them are illnesses that were brought in by outsiders right. from the outside world, mm-hmm. from the white people or Asians or whatever. So, yeah, sick, yeah. Sugar, TB, even mm. TB, there was no TB in Vanuatu before. Mm. The only things that they really existed in TB in Vanuatu before the outsiders came was um, malaria, mm. yaws, um, that uh, scabies thing. Scabies, mm-hmm. um, uh, Malaria, uh, uh, what, um, yeah, big leg, uh, elephantitis. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and that, and, that, and that was basically about it. But all these other things, that even the common cold didn't even exist. Right. And all these other things now that everybody's being treated for, heart attack, high cholesterol, yes. yeah. high cholesterol, you know, diabetes, type mm-hmm. 2, they're Stroke. all being introduced, you know. Yeah, so almost all the modern medicines are going to cure things that were brought in from the outside yes. world. Eh? Yes, so we're yeah. finding it hard to accommodate all that because... It's, you know, and it, it takes a while to kind of figure out and even the population themselves, you know, when you try to educate them about this, it's a whole different uh, mindset. And like it doesn't seem to match the lifestyle that you live in. Well, I want to thank you so yeah. much for our time today. Um, if there is anything, anything last thing that you want to say, that will be wonderful. Okay, Mary, many thanks. It's been a real pleasure and an honor for me to sit on your mat and talk. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd just like to say something. Look, I spent 11 years at university in England mm-hmm. doing studying anthropology and things associated with anthropology and culture. And you know, so eight of those years were at Oxford and Cambridge, which are considered to be pretty good universities and stuff. But what I'd like to say to people, particularly in Vanuatu, is that I've learned more by talking with you people in Vanuatu since 1973, I've learned more about really important things in the world than one could ever hope to learn in a white man's university. Mm. That's the thing. Uh, and custom and traditions and cultures and stuff are education. Mm-hmm. Vanuatu had education long before the white man came. It's just it didn't scratch them on leaves like the white people does, like writing. <laughs> um, <laughs> But also, uh, uh, yeah, and also the thing is, the modern education system, and at one time the culture center was trying to do, the, do this, was you know, trying to introduce a, an important cultural component into modern education. Mm-hmm. You see, the thing is, though, very often some of the older people in Vanuatu will say, ah, me fright or school. It doesn't necessarily mean they're just frightened of Christianity, but they're frightened, frightened of the modern education system as well. Because what it is, is is the modern Western education system that all the schools in the Pacific follow, follows a system of linear logic. Hmm. 
you know, A leads to B leads to C leads to D in a sort of a straight line. Right. You know, but traditionally, many of the cultures in Melanesia uh, don't follow uh, linear logic. They have their own systems of logic that may be more com complex mm. than linear logic. Mm. You can actually have lateral types of logic, lateral thinking types of logic. You can have circular types of logic and things mm. like that. And the Western system has never understood this. Mm. Because they, yeah, 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 it's a sort of a Westminster system. Right. It's a sort of a Westminster system mm -hmm. that tries to bulldoze itself around the world, assuming that that's the best system. Mm. It might be the best system in Westminster, but Westminster is only a very small part of the world. Right. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't necessarily... Uh, coincide exactly with the way that many other cultures think. Hmm. Um, but what, uh, uh, and so what it is, is very often people from traditional cultures may say, well, the white man's education system is, it's okay, but it scrambles your brains. Right. Uh, another chief told me it, it shortens your memory. And the thing is, I realized this. In a traditional system, you're taught to remember with your yeah. head. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. In the white man system, no, you write it down in the book. Uh, really, uh, uh, Jimmy Takaronga from Futuna once mm. did it. Uh, Takaronga Kwasonga, as he was mm. sometime, as he was known at one point in his life, mm. from Futuna. He was brought up in traditional way on Futuna. Mm. Told me years ago, he said, yeah. He said, um, <laughs> the white man's way is uh, they take what they've done is they've taken... Uh, what was in your head, what was in our heads, and they've put it in a thing called a book. Mm. And so they don't think they need it in their heads anymore, so they've forgotten it in their heads, and they've got it in the book. But the thing is, if they lose the book, then all you bugger up big one. They really <laughs> missed it, because they are, yeah. And then later on, he said, uh, he said, now there are people where the modern world has gone even further, and they've made another similar mistake, is they've taken what was in our heads and they put in the book. Uh, and now they've taken it out of the book and they put it in a thing called a computer. They've thrown away the book because they think they don't need the book anymore because right. they've got it in a computer. Uh, and then the computer breaks down. So only bugger up, only <laughs> double bugger up now. <laughs> They're really buggered up. And, and, and this is the thing. Mm. Uh, and the thing is, some people might say, oh, that analysis is a bit, you know, I think he's spot on. It's right. a very profound analysis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because the thing is, now if you rely, look, modern technology is, at one level, can be absolutely super. Right. If you use it in the right way. Like, mm -hmm. you know, you're over there on the in, on a, a rather big isolated island on the far side of the world at the moment. Right. Yeah, in the United States. So, you know, and you're talking with me in Sydney, in yes. Australia, here. Yes. That's a good use of modern technology. Right. But if you rely on that, what happens if that breaks down? Right. That is very true. Now, again, the modern digital technology system, again, is very fragile. Right. It's very fragile. It's on a, again, it's built, I mean, it's really, uh, uh, it's absolutely super mm. if it's used properly. This podcast is created and produced by Melanesian Women Today, a non-profit organization. Please visit our website at www.melanesianwomentoday.org. That is all one word. 
Melanesian Women Today envisions a Pacific region where every woman, girl and child in their respective communities in Melanesia lives a productive, healthy and fulfilling life. We are on a mission to improve the well-being and quality of lives and also to promote and improve leadership in women and girls in their communities. Please consider making a donation today on our website to support our work. Thank you for your support.